Michael. Hello, Allison. And welcome everyone to Dean's Discuss COVID-19. It's good to be talking with you today about our research with our faculty and our students and our staff and all of the aspects that we're doing around this subject of COVID-19. But, you know, before we really dive into it, maybe we ought to talk about why are we doing this podcast? Well, we're doing this podcast to really talk about uh, the School of Veterinary Medicine, the School of Medicine, and really all the research that's going on at UC Davis and really highlight how our, uh, uh, the schools of veterinary medicine uh, and medicine and nursing and all the schools at UC Davis are working together to fight COVID-19. Yeah, I really think it's our, our, our really obligation to, to tell you how our interdisciplinary teams, how we we work across the causeway, uh, and this podcast really allows us to explain from uh, our perspective uh, how our faculty work together to really solve complex problems. We, we refer to this sometimes as one health. It's really about our teams getting together and working as one team. You know, I don't think there's any other university system in the country that has a top ag school, top vet school, top nursing school, and stop top medical school that can work so synergistically and so quickly, nimbly, as we've shown in COVID-19. This is going to be a great discussion. I think so. And it really gives us a chance to, to express our uh, appreciation, but also brag a bit uh, about our faculty because we're very enthusiastic and this podcast allows us to express that and really explain um, you know, about our research and how they work together. So let's dive in today on testing. Have you been seeing what I've been seeing, all these people at the beach? You know, I think testing is going to be a big issue as the country reopens. Yeah, I think coming out of the uh, self-isolation all of us have been in, I think there's a real hunger for everybody to get out. And as you know, it's so uh, different uh, according to which region of the country you're in. And what was really um, frightening, actually, is uh, those states that had a, a, an opening, but unfortunately, right at Memorial Day, um, a really hunger for people to get together. And, and uh, you saw those images, and it was pretty scary where they were all gathered together in a pool together, uh, very close together, not self-isolating, nobody with a mask. And what we're really concerned about is that second wave of infections that, that we're likely going to see. And so our topic today of testing is so critical uh, in order to understand you know, where the virus is gonna show up next. Right, and the thing about testing is if you test someone and they're negative on Monday, but they go out to a big beach on Tuesday, they could be positive on Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday and still be infecting people for a week or, or more. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, I really worry about what I see on the news and around town, um, people going out without masks. You know, really it should be six feet or masks unless they're your own family. Yeah, the, the news, we, we see it almost every night, uh, you know, that where we've had situations where people that that have not followed these um, public health practices um, end up causing a, a problem. And, and we know that a lot of people are doing their very best to, to follow these procedures, but it's absolutely critical as we, as we think about the entire country and these different uh, social situations that we're involved in. I think it's kind of fortunate that here in California, 
we had a, um, a very quick recognition of the, the fact that social distancing in our state did respond in a, uh, a fashion that allowed us to, to limit the spread. And we know that that did not occur in other parts of the country. And I'll tell you, um, it's had a great impact on our hospital. So um, we had one patient the other day and for about three hours, we had none. And so Sacramento has gone from having, you know, 20 patients a month ago to in our hospital. So, you know, our hospital is really, was really prepared. And I actually will say that I think the test, you know, we got a test up and running on, I believe it was March 14th. Um, and getting that test allowed us to quickly test people, um, make sure that we got them enrolled in trials, um, and managed PPE. It was really remarkable. And uh, the whole Sacramento community has really responded so that um, we have very little COVID in our community. And what we need to do is really uh, continue to keep it that way. Yeah. And I think that's why, you know, I think in terms of our subject on this podcast, the, the first thing both of us thought of is, well, let's talk about testing, um, you know, because it's fundamental uh, to understanding uh, virus infections, and in, in, especially in this case where we have a new virus infection in a population that is naive and has never seen this virus before. So that's why one of the first things is to find out who is actually infected, who, who is shedding the virus. And, and our, our subject today is really uh, you know, about that. So I wanted to talk a little bit about how UC Davis stood up testing. Um, actually the middle of March. So um, as you're aware, uh, Michael, we had the first community acquired case in the country on exactly. February 26th. Yeah. Um, and on March 2nd, we brought together the doctors taking care of that patient, the lab folks, and all the researchers, some from the vet school, um, virologists, and we put them all in a room. And it turned out that the lab had the ability to share samples with appropriate approvals with the virologist and then that started us to really be able to expedite making our own test which was that, really a game changer yeah, that was a great uh, a great story in in the sense because it also illustrates how uh, both of our schools have worked together for for a long time and we had the the infrastructure in place and as you mentioned the virologist uh within our center for infectious disease and immunology as well as the primate center along with your clinicians. And, you know, that's really what it takes to, to work together in a collaborative way that that teamwork and everybody sort of focused on that one goal in this case. It was amazing. Um, uh, that patient was here on February 26 was when we got the diagnosis. And we were able, I think, went live with our first test that we did here on the 14th. Um, so the initial test was done on smaller machines that were actually, I think, came from uh, a bunch of different places uh, that were loaded. And then we now have a machine that's a thousand, can run up to a thousand samples. But of course, there's all these bottlenecks with reagents and we've, you know, we've gotten the swabs and those kind of things. But maybe we should talk about testing and what yeah. that PCR testing really is. Yeah, you know, because, um, you know, a lot of people when they say we need to do more testing, and of course, that's the really what the entire world wants right now. I, I think one of the things that I think about, um, you know, as a virologist, somebody that studied viruses, 
is uh, what you're asking uh, when you do those tests. You know, for example, you know, why are we doing the test? The obvious one is to diagnose a disease, but testing has so many different other attributes, including surveillance, uh, being able to understand an individual, but also really what's happening in the virus in the population. It was great that, that the School of Medicine was able to really mobilize that quickly to do that test. And so, you know, I, I think maybe when we go back and, and, and start to dissect, I think people really need to understand the, the type of test. So tell me a little bit about what you guys were testing and, and what was the, what was the, the kind of the, the starting material for that? So the starting material was actually, it's a PCR test, it's a diagnostic test. Um, and so that's the test that we stood up. Uh, originally, it was on a machine that took about five hours. And now the, the bigger machine, you can run the test, I believe, in about uh, an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what the test is. It's a PCR test. So um, when you get the test, of course, it's that nasopharyngeal swab. That must, be um, off, that must be awfully fun to get a sample. Oh, I, I haven't done it myself, but oh my gosh, the pictures look. Um, and I, they did tell me today that they're working on, um, they're working on uh, just Q-tips, so just nasal swabs. And I even heard something about spit tests. Um, I learned- I could do so, that one. I could do the spit test. Me no. too, me too. <laughs> um, but I learned something very interesting, you know, um, I'm a neurologist, so I learned in lab testing that whenever you bring in a new machine or new swabs or new anything, you have to validate the test. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're, I, you know, I, I think that was probably your most daunting challenge, uh, you know, getting all the material together. And of course, we know that that polymerase chain reaction is very, very sensitive. And to be able to validate it, what was really neat, what I heard also is you had the expertise uh, within the School of Medicine and you have some amazing uh, laboratory um, diagnosticians that are able to do that. Yes, um, and that was the best part about the meeting on March 2nd, which was right behind me in a conference room, uh, because the pathology department had a biobank, and the clinicians didn't know about it, and the virologists didn't know about it, and so we actually had people from your school, people from the main campus on the phone, and it was... um, pre-Zoom, but they were all like, okay, we could do this, we could do this. And um, uh, within, uh, you know, four days, we had approval to, to you know, this, for the sample to go to the virology lab. And we also stood up a clinical trial within that time period. And as soon as we were able to go live with our test, we were able to enroll um, a large number of patients in these clinical trials. So the test, the PCR test, tests whether or not there's, um, uh, part of the virus there. And it just says whether or not you have the virus. And it, it, you know, you could get the test one day and it'd be negative and you could walk into a place and be infected the next day and then not have symptoms for a week. Yeah, so, that's been a real problem, hasn't it? Because yes. some of your patients and, and, and of course uh, the amount of clinical presentations that have been presented maybe not shedding the virus, uh, but yet be infected, right? Is that, that's what you're finding? 
Well, that's actually uh, the bigger issue has been someone who is, you know, gets a positive test and develops symptoms, but continues with a positive um, PCR test. And are they still infectious? Oh, yeah. No. And so, you know, so they get symptoms, they have a positive PCR test. And then, you know, there are some people who have a small number remain positive testing for six weeks. What do you do? You've actually, but, you know, the test that is, here at Davis is about 99% sensitive and 99% specific. It is better than tests for HIV, the standard test for syphilis, the standard blood culture. It's a really good test. I think the country needs to understand that a test is not a test. So our test is really has these numbers, it's been validated every time they have a they have a new machine coming, they're validating it. But some of these other tests that are quicker um, may not be pick up all the cases. So you may have what we call more false negatives. And I understand the faster the test, uh, the more chances that it may not pick up all the cases. Yeah, and a, a lot of those, uh, you know, it depends on what they're looking for. The nucleic acid or the, the PCR tests are for you know, as you mentioned, are very sensitive and you have a great one. And uh, that's, that was really important early on. And now, of course, a lot of the talk is about uh, things like antigen tests, where we're looking at parts and pieces of the virus. And, and those proteins, um, you know, those kind of tests can be done without the complicated robotic machinery. So there's an advantage there. And a lot of people have said, well, maybe that's an answer. But unfortunately, those antigen tests can aren't as specific and sensitive as you just mentioned for your test. So what do you think of the antigen test? Do you think that's gonna be developed in such a way that it can be more uh, broadly used? You know, I don't know. We are waiting on that here. Um, and right now we're working to try to expand um, the things to do the PCR test. Um, I think also the big, big question out there is the antibody test. So yeah. everybody wanted an antibody test. And, you know, um, that's a, a challenge because an antibody test only means that you had exposure mm -hmm. and no one really knows how much you need. Uh, we know that the IgM comes on really pretty quickly in a couple of days in the IgG in a, a week or two, but no one knows how much or how long. And so I think that's a real challenge. I mean, you know, we get antibody titers for, you know, mumps and measles and rubella, right? That's what you get before, you know, you're going to start a new job, for example. And we know what those titers mean but we don't know what the titer means to COVID. And we, and so it doesn't mean that if you had a positive antibody test that you're not going to use PPE. That's um, right. Yeah. You no, know, I think there was some thought that it would, you know, save PPE or we would be able to tell people they're immune, but I don't think we really know for an individual. Now I do think, and, and you have lots of experience in this kind of virology area, but I do think if we begin to get some knowledge about antibodies, that's going to help the people who are doing the vaccine development. Exactly. Yeah. That's, it's a foundation for the vaccine. It's not to tell me that I can go in without a mask because I'm immune. 
Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think, you know, one of the difficulties with a new pathogen like this is because we don't have information in the literature to say, you know, what those antibodies mean, what are, what are the titers mean, and, and then an antibody isn't an antibody, as you mentioned, IgM versus IgG. And then also, does it actually neutralize the virus? And so we're just now getting uh, studies uh, done at UC Davis and as well as elsewhere to, to determine the, the, in a sense, the, the ability of those antibodies to actually be effective. And that gets to the question that you ask, which is, if you have an antibody response, are you actually going to be uh, immune the second time you see the virus? And so that means virus neutralization, where you actually take that patient's serum and, and use it in a laboratory to neutralize the virus. And, you know, it's interesting because coronaviruses in this, you know, this, this is a coronavirus, are um, widely known um, in the field, uh, meaning that there are many different types of animals that have their own coronaviruses, from chickens to pigs to cats. And we have the same problems uh, in terms of interpreting uh, many of these testing procedures. Uh, and, and as we get new viruses, you know, the question is always the same, which is, um, you know, what does an antibody mean? Is it a neutralizing antibody? Can we elicit it with a vaccine? Those types of neutralizing antibodies that we know. Fortunately, we do know a lot about SARS-CoV-2, the, the etiologic agent here, because it was previously um, characterized in bats. Um, it, it had a, another form. It was about 96% similar. And we knew the spike protein. So we knew the parts and pieces of the virus that are likely to be what we call immunogenic and, and elicit antibody responses. So there was some real advantages by knowing that kind of information about the virus before it came along as a new pathogen. But as you say, we still need to determine in humans with this particular virus, what do those antibodies mean? And so there's a lot of questions out there. So the other big question is asymptomatic testing. So everybody wants to get a test and they don't have any symptoms. And the problem with that is, um, well, one is it, it makes it so if you only can do, we can do about 560 tests a day right now. Um, we're working on getting our other machine on. There's still an issue with um, what we call the reagents. We, we've, we've, we've made our own media, we've made our own swabs, we, we're out, we have great backup plans, but there's still that, that, that secret juice that comes from the manufacturer that makes the machine. And that's the, that's the bottleneck. So, you know, you want to really test um, the people who have symptoms because in the fall, it'll be really important to test people who look like they have the flu, do they have the flu or COVID? You want to test new admissions. People who are doing getting anesthesia, for example, have a much higher risk of general anesthesia if they've got if they're COVID positive. But testing just a healthy person off the street has a very low chance of being positive. And um, and so you know, I I think this idea that the asymptomatic people should be tested it doesn't really help because they could be negative on Monday 
and go to the beach with hundreds of people on Tuesday. Yeah, and unfortunately, we saw some of that right. uh, as the country right. started opening back up. Yeah. Oh, boy, that was scary. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you get a negative test on Monday, you go to the yeah. beach with uh, the hundreds of your best buddies, and you say, well, I'm good. I'm positive. All right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it, that's actually one of the difficulties, you know, because if you do have a antibody titer and you say, well, gosh, you know, I, I, I've been exposed and I survived, I, I'm, I'm good to go. And then because, as we talked about, you don't know, could you be reinfected? Uh, could you actually shed the virus and, and in a different stage? So because of those unknowns, the CDC, of course, um, doesn't recommend really using antibody tests on, as you say, individuals, especially if they're not showing symptoms. It's really, it's going to be very helpful on a population base, certainly. Yes. Uh, and a lot of our epidemiologists and uh, both in the school of medicine and in vet med are, are actively looking at that, both in people and, by the way, in animals. Uh, and that, yes. that question came up, um, do antibodies uh, or do, does the virus infect, uh, for example, pets of people that have COVID? And of course, uh, we now know that there are a limited number of species that can get the, the same virus if they're in close contact with people. So uh, cats, uh, there have been a couple of cats, most recently a couple of prominent examples was in New York at the Bronx Zoo with the tigers, but also a couple of domestic cats. And so that brought up a lot of questions for I'll people bet. Oh my because of the millions of pets out there. And you have a pet, right? I have two dogs, two rescue yes. dogs. That's right. And uh, so a lot of, that was a natural question. Of course, we got a lot of questions about that. And so there was a massive amount of uh, samples tested uh, in uh, domestic animals, mostly cats, um, but also in dogs. And there were rare positives. Um, what was interesting about that is, and uh, looking at the, the numbers of samples, uh, those rare that were positive, the animals were generally asymptomatic, but a few had mild symptoms and recovered. So it's, it's what we call um, almost as if they're what we call a dead-end host, meaning that the virus really is limited um, when it crosses over species barriers like that. Not that, that it isn't important, not that it is an important question, but in general, what we want to do is limit testing in pets to those situations, as you mentioned, that is really important. So for example, if, if we have a patient that has COVID-2, especially if they're symptomatic and they have a pet in close contact, uh, those are the type of ones we would want to prioritize and test for that, especially if they have symptoms. But we're going to rule out, like humans, yeah. all the other things that can cause respiratory disease in cats. And there are a lot of other things that cause respiratory disease in cats. So we rule that out. But if they're COVID positive, obviously, we're going to isolate them just like a human and treat them the same way. And, and in fact, uh, that's the recommendation. But for generally, we try to reassure people that pets are generally not getting infected uh, with uh, SARS-2. In fact, we're probably more of a threat to, to them than they are to us. And so now that brings up another really interesting thing about where it came from, and, and we'll probably get into that in our future podcast is, wow. you know, what's the origin of, where did this virus come from? But we can talk about that at another one of our podcasts. Well, that's, that's going to be a great topic. You know, I think my message to people is, if you don't have any symptoms, you don't need tested, 
if you're in contact with someone and then that's maybe a different story. Um, but the other thing is I really run and send the message that people need to wear masks and, um, you know, hot off the press were some recommendations from the CDC and it's really six feet or masks. And we had our graduation virtually, but those of us who were standing in the same room were wearing these masks and, you know, that's what we need to focus on. Um, and then testing the symptomatic people or the people who are very high risk, um, you know, who develop symptoms and prioritizing. Um, so that's what the focus is. Uh, clearly, we need opportunities to test more people. We absolutely do. And our rate limiting piece is the reagents that we get from the manufacturer of our machine. But um, I think this, this idea of testing hundreds and hundreds of asymptomatic people when we can't test all the symptomatic people is a challenge. Um, and Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think, uh, you know, as we think about uh, ramping back up in our research labs and our, in our educational uh, lecture halls, you know, one of the things that you emphasize is really important, which is the physical distancing, the, the face masks uh, that we're all wearing. All of those things are so, so critical because, you know, what we really, um, because of these other unknowns, we really want to stop the spread of that. And, and, and we're going to, everything's, um, you know, we're, we're learning more and more about uh, this virus and where the, the real threats are. And, you know, I think the personal protective equipment, physical distancing, all of the things we're doing to, to ask uh, people if they have symptoms, please stay home. You know, these are all things that that will really help us in in really flattening the curve, which we've we've all heard now, and it's part of our lexicon now is, is yeah. flattening the curve. So, you know, I'm really appreciative of a school of medicine um, and a school of veterinary medicine because we can we can have those what we call interdisciplinary teams work together, like you said, and you know, to develop those antigen antibody tests to be able to, to really think about who do we test, when, uh, and, and those are all really important for our public health officials. And, and uh, so thank you so very much with the collaboration, um, Allison and, and your entire faculty and team and all of ours that are working together and, and actually the others on campus. It's, engineering, um, we, have, we have the engineering guys amazing, making yeah. 3D printing swabs. And yeah. um, it's really been, you know, I have to say, um, we've been just uh, across the causeway. Um, UC Davis is really unique. I've been here 10 months um, and uh, the COVID has really shown that we have such a unique environment with vet med, engineering, school of nursing, school of medicine, the school of business has been helping out. Um, you know, it's really been a true collaboration and, 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 people have been working in record time. I mean, you know, approving protocols on the weekends and everybody was on speed dial to make that happen. And um, it really allowed us, I think, to, as an institution, to get ahead of the curve. And we were able to get people enrolled in trials. And, and that's because we all worked as a system. So it, it, this, was a, this was all hands on deck at across UC Davis. Yeah, and I, and I remember uh, when we recruited you, uh, we, we talked about that, and little did you know, 
how rapidly that was going to be demonstrated. But we are so glad that you are here, Allison, and, and are part of the team. And as you say, we think of ourselves as one team. And when we're threatened by something like COVID, it really brings that to, to the yeah. forefront that we are in one team against this virus. So and it's always great talking with you, Allison, and I'm really looking forward to, to a continuing this conversation. Well, it's great talking to you too, Michael. And um, so um, I'm Allison Brashear, and I'm the Dean of UC Davis School of Medicine, and you've been listening to Dean's Discuss. And I'm Michael Laramore, Dean of the School of Veterinary Medicine at UC Davis. And uh, I wanna make sure that uh, you return next week and listen to our next episode. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any of this. And we welcome your questions and your ideas on topics for future episodes. You can email us at deansdiscuss at ucdavis.edu. And in the meantime, you can visit ucdavis.edu backslash COVID-19 for the latest coronavirus research. We'll see you next week. Bye.